I once knew a pastor friend who could not preach a sermon without preaching grace. To the point that every sermon that he preached was about grace. He saw it everywhere, played one note, grace abounding. And he took it to a bit of an extreme, but his singular focus impacted me. He would always say, as we are saved by grace, so we live by grace and serve by grace. On point when it comes to this most prominent of biblical doctrines, grace dominates Scripture. Permeating Scripture, the sweet aroma that we are saved by grace, we live by grace, we serve by grace, we will die by grace, we will live forever in Christ, by grace, trusting the saving grace of Jesus to sustain us. We have slowed to a crawl as we've come to these last four verses in 1 Thessalonians. A prayer, a kiss, an oath, a life. And we're in chapter 5, and we've come to the last verse. Come to savor the last few words of this loving letter. I don't know about you, but when I'm preaching through a book in the Bible, I never want to leave it. I want to keep dwelling in it. This beautiful letter shows the beloved of God in Christ becoming more beloved to one another in light of the imminent return of Christ. There's this urgency to love in light of Christ's return. In verse 25, we saw that we need to pray in faith. Brothers, pray for us. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray for one another. Verse 26, we saw that we are to greet each other in love. Greet everyone with a holy kiss. And if some of you are like, yes, go listen to that sermon before you do that. We're to receive one another. We're to reflect God's glory in choosing to save us and to love us. And we are to choose to love as Christ loved. That's what it means to greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 27, we saw that verse that said, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. We are to read in hope of the glory of God. We are conscience bound to hear and obey God's word together by God's grace with the people of God. And then we come to verse 28. Look with me at verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Speaking of a life of grace, live by grace. You know, everywhere you look in the Bible, you see glimpses of God's grace. So many different angles of of glory in the grace of God. You know, when you look at creation, you see so many stunning facets of of God's beautiful creation that displays his glory. But even more stunning, so many facets of God's superabounding grace are seen in his excellent word. There's this golden thread of redemption that runs throughout the entire Bible, and it traces God's plan to save. How grace was extended in the garden clothing sinners by sacrifice, promising a deliverer. And grace continued through Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the prophets. You see God's people even in exile. In Ezra 9, it says, We are slaves, but our God has not forsaken us. He has extended to us His grace. 
The psalmist cries out, the Lord gives grace. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Proverbs 3, we read that he gives grace to the afflicted. Jeremiah says the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Zechariah, speaking of the gospel of the grace of God to come, said it's not going to be by might or by human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And there's this great mountain raised up against the glory of God, and it will become a plain. It will be flattened. And God will bring forward the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. In Zechariah 12, God says, I will pour out on the house of David a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not in vain, and I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I but the grace of God with me. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and God made each believer alive together with Christ and that explains by grace you have been saved. God did it. Paul's testimony, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor against Christ, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul told Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 2, we read that the, by the grace of God, Christ tasted death for us. Therefore, we can then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. James says God gives more grace, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Peter says grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see God's covenant of grace throughout Scripture. God saving sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. The Bible is one story of the gospel of the grace of God. That God has spoken in many times and in many ways to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel. You think of the Old Testament sacrifices. You think of the priesthood. You think of the temple. They're pointing to their reality, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was born and lived and died and was raised, graced reached its fulfillment, its pinnacle, its zenith. Christ did what Adam failed to do so that we can receive grace. As Christians, we sing the grace of God. We sing the undeserved grace of God. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace greater than all my sin. The wonderful grace of Jesus. Grace that brings you to life. Amazing grace. Grace abounding. This grace in which I stand. Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. This line has been in my head all week. By grace I've been redeemed. 
by grace I am restored. As those songs just stick with us, they're built on gospel truth and they shape our thoughts. God would have grace shape our thoughts that you must trust the saving grace of Jesus to sustain you. To rely on God's grace, to trust Jesus to sustain you, to live by grace. This last verse is telling us that and it's looking back over the entire letter. You know, Paul's farewell benediction ends the letter as it began. You see grace two times, the word grace two times in 1 Thessalonians. In the first verse and the last verse. The theme of God's unmerited favor in Christ towards undeserving sinners. Paul is often bookending his letters with grace. You see it in Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon. You see Peter do the same thing in 1 and 2 Peter. You see John do it in Revelation. Bookended with grace. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He probably wrote it in his own handwriting. It was a distinctive farewell based on his favorite concept, grace. Grace is favor. Grace is goodwill. Grace is kindness. Grace is God's sovereign, initiated, unmerited kindness and favor. It's where you get what you know you do not deserve. Mercy is where God withholds the wrath that we deserve. And grace is where undeserved good is given. This is the grace of our Lord, the ruler, our captain, the one who commands us, our owner. You see the primacy of grace here due to the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe the most important word in this verse is the word of. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the grace of him. It emphasizes that grace is from him. Grace is from Jesus. Jesus is the source. Go with me to John chapter 1 in your Bibles. In John chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me, the great I Am, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Verse 16, For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. Literally, grace in the place of grace. It's like a river flowing with water. Water in the place of water. Grace in the place of grace. A constant supply of grace. It is all by grace. We are saved. We live. We serve. We'll die. We'll be with him forever. All by grace. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source 
of grace. It is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source. It comes from him. And Paul's first and last thought was, pray for that grace. He prays that saving grace, the grace of Jesus, would sustain them. And he's not just praying, by the way. He's declaring. He is declaring that it would be with you, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the saving grace that sustains, would be with them because he is with them always. Grace is the engine of the Christian life. Again, you're saved, you live, you serve, you die, you'll live forever, all by grace, all by, by Jesus. What should we know about this grace? As we look back on this letter, what would, what would we need to understand? How, how does this grace shape our life? How does this grace shape our minds? How does this great grace just permeate us such that we live trusting Jesus to sustain us? What does 1 Thessalonians illustrate of a life lived by grace? I'm going to go through and, and see this. And I, I want to point out the first thing will be in, just go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and you'll see that grace just permeates it all because the first point I want you to see is that grace regenerates. It regenerates. It brings the dead to life. Grace brings the dead to life. Grace is life-altering. You'll notice in verse 3, it, it, he is remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in chapter 4, there is a comfort in knowing that they are God's elect. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. You see in verse 5 and 6 that they are receptive to God's power and the Spirit of God who gives it as they receive the Word of God. This grace is evident as they follow the example of God's leaders and of God himself. It says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example to all the believers. Your, your witness was more effective. You, you spread the word of God. And then you look in verses 9 and 10, and, and grace gives them strength to stand against idolatry and to serve the living and true God as they wait patiently Christ's return. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, by his doing, by Christ's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Grace regenerates. All by grace. It's the effectual call of God. He saves from darkness to light. He rescues lost sinners. He transforms your life such that you have a testimony of faith in Christ. He regenerates. Brings the dead to life. I've been thinking about William Cowper's famous hymn this week, and some think it's a little morbid but it's beautiful there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains all by grace save solely on the mercy and the merits of Christ if you're a true believer you know you've been chosen. 
You know you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know you're trusting in his finished work at the cross, that your substitute died in your place for your sins. And you have to tell yourself the truth. Not like Bob Wiley and What About Bob, where you just kind of prop yourself up with ideas like, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. No, but give yourself the truth. I've been chosen by Jesus. I'm secure forever. I've been effectually called. I am faithfully kept. He will save me fully because those who are fully saved are in Christ forever. If you're truly saved, you'll be fully saved. You don't have to fear. Blessed assurance based on biblical truth. Yet if you refuse to yield to Christ, you are quite literally gambling with your soul. You don't want to gamble with your soul. If you have not been born again, you're not a Christian. If you've not experienced new birth, you're not a Christian. If you do not have new life in Christ, you're not a Christian. If you've not been spiritually reborn, you're not a Christian. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul told Christians, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. I had someone say to me once, well, why should I have to do that? And my answer was, because it's in the Bible? Hello? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Do you have a changed heart because of Jesus? Do you have a changed life? Do you have changed affections? Do you now love what you once hated and hate what you once loved? Do you now hate your sin and love Jesus? If you're now hating your sin and loving Jesus, you're probably a Christian. English pastor John Hurrian, who was born in 1676, said this, Does our heinous guilt cry strongly against us for condemnation? Does our heinous guilt cry strongly against us for condemnation? Well, the answer to that question is yes, most assuredly yes. But his answer is the Christian should comfort himself in this, that the word of Christ cries louder in the ears of God for pardon and forgiveness. Sinclair Ferguson said, it is misleading to say that God accepts us just the way we are. If you're preaching the gospel that way, you need to stop it. If you say, oh, God will accept you just the way you are, you need to stop saying that. It's not biblical. It's misleading to say that God accepts us just the way we are. He accepts us despite of how we are. He receives us, as Ferguson says, only in Christ and for Christ's sake, nor does he mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his Son. God wants to transform you into the likeness of Christ. Burke Parsons said, We wouldn't save adulterers and murderers like David, or religious terrorists like Paul, or doubters like Thomas, or deniers like Peter, or wretched sinners like you and me. 
We are secure, as R.C. Sproul put it, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Grace regenerates, brings the dead to life. You see that clearly in chapter 1. Second point I'll bring out is in chapters 2 and 3, grace renews. Grace regenerates, brings the dead to life, but also consistently renews those whose hearts grow cold, whose hearts grow hard, even though they're being transformed. See, God, in his grace, transforms us more and more And you see this in in chapter 2, verse 4, that we want to be pleasing to God who tests our hearts. You see in in verse 5 that it frees us from greed. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, with the pretext for greed. God is witness. It gives us unselfish motives. We we didn't seek, verse 6, we didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But it makes you gentle, as verse 7 puts it, gentle like a mother caring for her children. Or like a father, verse 11, caring for his children. That you want to walk worthy of grace, verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Because grace not only regenerates, it renews your heart by the Spirit, through the Word, as you engage in the Christian life and as you desire to please God. It really goes into chapter 3 as well, where you see that they longed for them so much they wanted to see them, and that they saw that their faith and love was being reported, and they were very glad about that good news, and it led them to pray what you see in chapter 3, verse 11, that may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound to overflowing in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, verse 13, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ and and his return. Paul told the Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you, just overflowing abundant grace, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We told Philemon, hearts have been refreshed through you. God uses the body of Christ to, to refresh and, 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 and renew and restore. Grace renews. Grace restores. It's, it's like restore a finish. But it goes to the heart. It renews. It refreshes. It restores. It's like cold water to a weary soul. It's like if you're a marathon runner, it's those water stops along the way. Or if you're a hiker, it's the water bottle that you bring. Or if you're just a mere mortal, you, it's a snack between meals. Faith is nourished on the grace and the graciousness of Jesus Christ. As we think about this and how grace renews and how there's this beautiful picture of the church in chapter 2 and 3, what makes for a church where grace abounds? What, what kind of church comes out of that? What, what does the church flavored by grace look like and what how do they act what's it characterized by let me point out a couple things as grace renews god's people the first thing i'll point out is that there's worship there is worship that the repentant turn to god from idols they're humble before god and so our gatherings are boldly shaped after the bible not the culture 
that we come together for worship. And worship service is not a concert. It's not a comedy show. It's not a fashion show. Church shouldn't be like going to a mall or to an amusement park. It is where God's people come together as one to sing and to pray and to hear the word preached and read and to praise the glories of God's grace in Christ. Worship is going to flavor the church when we're renewed by God's grace. Secondly, we'll welcome the word. We will welcome the word. There's teaching and exhortation that everyone must hear. The word of God, as chapter 2, verse 13 says, that does its work in you who believe. That you do not need to be led astray by strange teachings, as Hebrew 13 says, but it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. That the God who speaks who created man in his own image, by his grace gave us language for one reason, so that he could speak his word and that we would have his word in written form. That the God who speaks created man in his image and by his grace created and oversaw human language in order to communicate the written word of God. That's why we have language. It is the record of God's grace that renews us. That the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to comfort us, to change us, to convict us, to challenge us. We welcome the Word when we are being renewed by God's grace. And number three, we will welcome the church. We will welcome the church with a holy kiss. God put you into His family. God blesses you. God grows you close with other believers. And then you are unencumbered by things that weigh relationships down. You welcome people. The resentment you might hold rots your soul, but grace restores. Grace renews. Some of you like to sit in the same place with the same seat in church every week. And I think that is a wonderful thing. I think it's awesome. You know why? I can can point you out while I'm preaching. No, you know why it's such a wonderful thing? Because this is where you feel good about belonging and hearing the word and singing and praying and doing the word with other believers and you like to sit in a certain place i got a spot i like to sit and if you're if you're sitting there i'm like what wait wait a minute (laughs) someone moved something i got a place i like to park in the parking lot too you know it's good it's because you feel like wow this is my place i belong here And, and as i'm hearing the word and praying and singing I'm doing this with believers that I love, and and it's good that you want to be in a certain location. Just don't tell someone they're sitting in your seat. You welcome the church. Number four, you share your life. A, a, A church that is flavored by grace, that is being renewed by grace, you welcome people into your space. You, you invite them in. You, you're eager to greet them. You find joy. As a friend of mine said this week, you find joy when someone comes close, not when they go away. Like you find joy when you're inviting them in, not when they leave. You share God's word. You share your life. This is body life. This is humble hospitality. Peter said, as each one has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Share your life. A few more. Five, there will be purity. Purity will mark the church. Sanctification will mark the church. But we won't use that to harm one another. Ray Ortland said something significant. He said, 
we who care about holiness face the temptation to nullify the grace of God, having a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And we can go beyond what is written and get puffed up in favor of one against another. Robert Murray Machane warned his congregation. He said, study sanctification to the utmost, but do not make a Christ of it. God hates this idol more than all others. Church marked by grace will be marked by purity and sanctification that loves everyone. Six, there will be encouragement. I was reading an article this week, and the writer said this, there are not many people who are at risk of drowning in an ocean of encouragement or being swept away by a tsunami of cheer or being pulled under by great waves of comfort. There's not enough encouragement and cheer and comfort. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, for edification, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our speech, our words are to be seasoned with grace. And one more, number seven. Not just encouragement, but just choosing love overflowing. Choosing love overflowing. That grace is cultivated in an atmosphere of love and and it's like a snowball, and love is cultivated in an atmosphere of grace. And, and you want to cultivate the field of, of grace. Crops are growing where water is flowing. And grace is a well that will not run dry ever because it's God's grace. Grace is from Jesus. I mean, wells of our own making, they'll fail. They're faulty. They'll, they'll get broken. Any well I might want to dig will be shallow and leaky, but there is one whose well never runs dry who, who always overflows, and I am connected to his supply, Jesus Christ. Grace regenerates, grace renews. It flavors the church, flavors the people in it. What else does grace do? Grace not only regenerates and renews, but grace reassures. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, grace reassures that there is, will be no separation for believers from Christ, that you need not fear separating from Christ, that there were believers in that day who said, you know, what about my, my, my believing brother or mother or sister or friend? Will they miss out on Christ's return because they've died before it? Will they miss out on the party? We are to encourage one another with the words that we will always be with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. That by his poverty you might become rich. And that's never going to be taken away from believers. Peter says, Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whether you die or he returns, whichever comes first. Grace is, is lavished upon believers. There's no fear of separation for believers, that it is a generous grace and it is eternal and it is superabounding and it causes us to stand even now and it permeates like this, the most beautiful seasoning 
and it's greater than all, and it gives us reassurance. It's like when you get that encouragement note, and someone just says, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you, I'm praying for you, you can do it, or a text. Or when you get an inheritance and you say, I don't have to worry about those resources anymore. You have an inheritance in Christ that reassures you that you should be able to enjoy the riches of grace that are lavished upon us. Now, when I think of lavish, I think of like a really good cake, like a carrot cake. And there's a carrot cake right there at at the base, but then they put that cream cheese frosting on top, but it's lavish like higher than the cake, and you're like, yes, right? Lavished, superabounding. Ephesians 1 says this, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Riches that never run dry. A storehouse of riches. And it says that he lavished that grace upon us. Lavished. That means over and above, abounding, abundant, more than enough, overflowing. There's a surplus. There are leftovers, but of the best kind. Leftovers of the best. Grace reassures you. Grace reminds you. I have been redeemed. I was lost. Now I'm found. I'm encouraged because I will always be with the Lord. The one who calls me is with me in everything. Be reassured, beloved believer. Especially whatever you're going through right now that might make you feel shaky. Grace regenerates, grace renews, grace reassures, but also, and we'll get into chapter 5 on this, grace reorients. Grace reorients you to eternal realities. They had endured a great conflict of sufferings, and they get reoriented in chapter 5 over and over again to, in light of Christ's return, in light of the day of the Lord, here's how you should live. Do this and that. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, all of that. Remember that from Christ's fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, grace in the place of grace, a continual supply of grace. Christ is central. He he reorients you to what is really true. He recalibrates your heart by his spirit through the word. It's like a compass and it tells you this is the right way to go. Even if your mind is telling you, no, I think north is that way. that way or that way the gps telling you you're going the wrong way and you're like nope i know better well sometimes you do but most of the time you don't god in his sovereign grace and providential wisdom works everything together perfectly he reorients you to eternal realities and who's doing it the god who perfectly ordered the universe the god who created meticulously down to the patterns of every creature and ratios of ears and arms and faces and spirals of a pine cone and dragonfly wings and seashells. And Satan has deceived the whole world into thinking that we came from monkeys, that we evolved. And Satan has deceived so many to think that they can work their way to God and decide their fate. And grace 
is the only thing that sustains. Saving, sustaining grace that rescues us from ourselves, that delivers us from the power and the penalty of sin. And praise God, one day its very presence. Can you imagine a time when you won't just be forgiven from by the, from the power and penalty of sin, but you will be whisked away, completely away from the presence of sin and be with your Savior forever, giving you what you don't deserve, grace by which you are saved and sanctified and by which you stand, grace. Grace that frees you from sneaking around and coddling your sin and hiding from others like a coyote who's sneaky by nature, snatching up those field mice and rabbits and chickens. I saw two coyotes this week, like 20 feet away. They're like bold. And they saw me and ran away. Not sure what that was about. But you want to be more like a, a trusting child unashamed resting in the good grace of your Savior. You say to him, your grace is enough. That's what he said. God himself said, my grace is sufficient for you. Our sufficiency is Christ. Our adequacy is Christ. He says, my power was made perfect in your weakness. It is made perfect in your weakness. And he sees the whole picture. You know, I'm taking pictures of um, scenery, usually on hikes, sometimes in my car, uh, from my car, uh, taking scenery pics, what I do is I zoom in to remove all the stuff I don't want in the picture, like power lines and what have you. But the wide angle sees everything. And sometimes you just have to just see it like it is. But know this, God in his grace sees it like it is better than we do. It's interesting, nobody wants us to zoom in. It shows what they don't want to be seen up close. But God sees everything, and he makes beauty. He gives shape to everything. His grace gives shape to everything, sufficient for every need. Grace to save us, to sanctify us, to cause us to stand, to promise us for eternity that we will always be with him. It is grace that we can believe. It is grace that we can leave our sin behind. It is grace that we can cleave to our Savior and receive his word, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, given new life in Christ, and life change happens. So if you're a thief, you no longer steal. If you're a liar, you no longer lie. If you're a gossip, you no longer gossip. If you're a murderer, you no longer murder. And such were some of you. Such were some of us. And we have been captured by grace, and we never flaunt it. Recipients of of grace, true recipients of grace never flaunt it at all. They humbly say, God drew me to Christ solely on Christ's merit and mercy, not my goodness, and I am grateful, and all I want to do is love and serve and please and obey my Lord Jesus Christ until my dying breath, and then I'll praise his glories forever. Because of grace, you can relinquish your anger issues and your condemnation issues and your control issues. You can rest in grace because grace reorients you to eternal realities. Now you have to tell yourself the truth again and again and again, over and over and over. 
The, the world will feed you lies. Your own mind will feed you lies. You have to tell yourself objective truth. Say, I'm going to live by grace and keep trusting God's word, not my own mind. And you'll notice there's this huge focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see it all the way through the Bible. You see it all the way through 1 Thessalonians. And you see it in verse 28. Titus 2 tells us the grace of God has appeared. Jesus appeared, Christ in the flesh, to die in place of lost sinners so we could go free. And, and that's why we, by God's grace, can repent of our sins. Turn from our sins. That's why we, by God's grace, can reconcile relationships that are broken. That's why we, by God's grace, can rejoice in the grace of God. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. And what it does is it leads us to the Savior, once again, who went to the cross and to his empty tomb and to the resurrection. Do you know that the root of all your problems in the Christian life is your failure to boast in the cross, boast in Christ? Paul said it this way, Far be it from me that I would boast in, in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world's been crucified to me and I to the world. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace from Jesus Christ because of the cross. We will boast in the cross for eternity. We must do so now. It will make you heavenly minded. It will make you humbled. It will make you rejoice in grace. This is for men and women and boys and girls. This is for all of us that we would consider the riches of Christ and his grace greater than all of our other hopes and aspirations and ambitions. That you would find Christ more satisfying than anything you want in life. That anything that you desire. Corey Tenboom said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you will be at rest. Because grace regenerates and renews and reassures and reorients. And I'm going to point out to you one more thing that grace does and will do. A fifth idea from this passage, from this book, from this letter. Grace will lead us home. If you're a believer, grace will lead you home in God's perfect time Jesus will come for his church. Grace will see you welcomed home to walk beside your Savior. By grace I am redeemed, the song goes. By grace I am restored. Now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. He will lead you home. You know, when I'm on a long-distance flight, one of the things that thrills me and confuses me and frustrates me is the tracker, the, 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 uh, the screen in front of you that, that you can hit where it shows you where you're at in, in the uh, flight. And if you're going all the way to England or South Africa or, or the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean, some of these places I've been, and you, you, you look at the tracker and you're at the very beginning, you're like, man, we've got a long way to go. Got 10 hours, 12 hours. And it, sometimes it just goes so slow. But I love it when you're getting closer and closer and closer and you see the little, the little plane just kind of going closer and closer and closer to the final destination that you're going to. 
Think of the salvation we have in Christ. It is miraculous. It is meticulous down to the minute God makes the dead live, guides you through this life, and will bring you safely to your promised inheritance. Recently, Tim Challies wrote of a dream that he had. And he was told in this dream, Christ will return in exactly one hour. And he says, in my dream, I leapt from bed, ran downstairs, grabbed my coat and keys, sprinted out the door, and I knew exactly where I was supposed to be, the Glen Oaks Cemetery. He said, there's no place on earth I like to go less but need to go more. No place on earth where I feel greater hope or deeper sorrow. He said, I knew I was supposed to be there. I flung the car door open and I leapt into the pre-dawn darkness. And up and down the rows of graves, I began to run, shouting the glad tidings. It's time! It's time! It's time to rise! And I ran up one row and down the next. I paused briefly by the grave of a young man whose parents had written just three short words on his gravestone, words Aslan once whispered to Lucy when she was overwhelmed with fear and uncertainty. Courage, dear heart. Michael, I cried, it's time. It's time to rise. Then I took off running, but paused almost immediately by a nearby grave just a few weeks ago, a family gathered to sing sweet hymns of comfort. It's time, my Christian sister, just a few more moments, your body and soul will be joined together and you'll rise. The clock ticked down to one minute. My feet carried me to the spot in that cemetery that has become most familiar. My face glowing golden with the sunrise, I paused where I've paused so often, on the edge of that patch of grass, tended by my hand and watered by my tears, and I dropped to my knees. I want to note that his 20-year-old son died suddenly of a heart ailment on November 3rd, 2020. He was a faithful follower of Christ. He dropped to his knees, and confident and unwavering, I said, It is time, my boy. It's time. Just one more minute. We'll hear the cry of command. Just one more moment. We'll hear the voice of the archangel. Just a few more seconds, and we'll hear the blast of the trumpet. It's time, my boy. It's time. It's time to wake. It's time to rise. And I began the final countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. And he awoke to find it was a dream. And he said, my face was wet with tears and my heart was rich with joy. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Grace. It overcomes and comforts every wound you bear, every issue tended by God's hand and watered by your tears. Trust the saving grace 
of Jesus to sustain you. Trust Jesus to sustain you. And so the curtain falls on another Bible book, a beautiful, beloved letter. And I know that we won't let it go in one ear and out the other. Certainly God's beloved must become more beloved and we must love Jesus more and love his appearing, urgently love others in light of the imminent return of Christ. You who are battered and bent and broken and bruised, come, weary heart, to Jesus. We look for our Savior. We long for a country that sin has not stained. It is almost time. It is almost time. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. We are one step closer to home. So trust Jesus to sustain you by his grace. And Lord, we praise you that we can live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Saving, sustaining grace. Grace greater than all of our sin. Grace that brought us to life. Amazing grace that regenerates and renews and reassures and reorients. And one day will lead us home. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.